Welcome to the Filling the Pearl podcast. Uh, my name is Greg Ashman. In this edition, my very special guest is Natalie Wexler, education journalist and author. Thank you for joining us, Natalie. Welcome to the podcast. Delighted to be here. Um, now, uh, we're gonna. You've written a couple of books uh, that we're going to explore in some detail: um, the Writing Revolution of Judith Hockman um, and uh, the uh, the Knowledge Gap. Um, and we'll come to those later. But what I'm really interested in to start with, I, I always like to ask my guests about this, um, is uh, how you how you got involved in education. So I understand that before you became focused on education, uh, you were a lawyer and a legal historian. Um, so. Can you explain what sparked your interest in education and, and little, uh, describe a little bit of that journey? Well, in addition to having been a lawyer and a legal historian, I've also written three novels. And uh, actually, I, I, was, I was working on a novel and it wasn't going very well. I've never told anybody this before, I, well, not on a, a publicly. So um, I got very interested in what was going on, on with education in, here in Washington, D.C. And I threw myself into that partly because that would save me from working on this novel that wasn't going very well. And, and, and it seemed way more important than writing another novel. Um, I mean, you know, the, the, what really uh, grabbed my attention was what's called in this country and maybe elsewhere, the achievement gap, which is this gap in outcomes between kids from the upper and lower ends of the socioeconomic spectrum. And it just seemed incredibly important to me to, to narrow that. and. I knew there'd been a lot of efforts and there were many going on in the district. And, you know, we just didn't seem to be making that much progress. So um, I really set out in a couple of different ways, a few different ways to, to figure out what the, the problem was. And one of those was writing about it as a journalist, uh, mostly for a, a local news website. I also volunteered as a tutor in some high poverty schools and I served on the board of a charter school. Um, so, and I was writing, you know, basically the, the, what other people were writing about how we needed more test-based accountability and we needed this and we needed that. And the problem really seemed to be at high school. Um, and I really just stumbled upon this thing that was huge, that I could see was hugely important that people generally were not talking about, which, which was, I'm sure we'll talk more about this, but um, the lack of content in the elementary curriculum and how we weren't teaching kids anything when they were young. And it seemed to me bigger than DC, certainly, and bigger than the, the you know, little articles I was writing, basically the posts I was writing. And so that led me to writing The Knowledge Gap. And, and before that, um, The Writing Revolution. And I can talk a little more about how that came about. Cool. Um, so we might we'll get, get into that then. So um, uh, that's how I first encountered you. So I think I first read... Um, about the the writing revolution in American Educator, I think I think that's where I, I read about it, and then I got a, a copy, and um, I thought, um, why haven't I heard about the Hockman method before? <laughs> At the time, I was so I'm a maths teacher, a senior maths teacher, and this is what people often uh, level against me when I uh, talk about anything other than maths. I say, well, you're just a senior maths teacher, but I'm also at my school. I'm head of research, so one of my jobs is to try and uh, ensure not not that we do research here but ensure that the best research out there informs what we do in our school and we'd had a bit of an issue with um, English and, and moving that uh, uh, ahead in, in certain areas and I'd been scratching around for things and then all of a sudden this uh, the writing revolution appears uh, writing specifically was an issue sorry not just English writing um, and I thought, well, I haven't heard of this before. So how did, how did that actually come about? How did you yeah. join up with Judith Hockman? Um, and, 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 and how did that, that sort of uh, take shape? Well, um, as I mentioned, I, one of the things I did to try to figure out what was the problem with education was uh, to tutor, uh, volunteer as a tutor in, in high poverty schools. And I, one of the things I did was volunteer to be a writing tutor in a high poverty DC high school, which was, it quickly became very clear to me that I was not adequate to this task. <laughs> and, and I mean, one of the things I realized was not only had nobody taught these kids how to write, but I would give them something to read so they could respond to it in writing and they 
couldn't understand what I'd given them to read, you know, because they just were missing, they, they didn't know so much of the vocabulary, the concepts. Um, and I was at a loss for what to do. And right about then, the Atlantic magazine came out with an article called The Writing Revolution. And it was about this low performing high school uh, with a lot of you know working class, low income kids on uh, in New York City and how this high school had really kind of turned itself around largely as a result of adopting this method of writing instruction that was then called the Hockman method. Um, and I thought, this is what these kids I'm working, I was working with these four kids, I was really worried about them. This is what they need because not only did it teach kids to write, I could see it, it also helped with their reading comprehension and it helped with their analytical thinking. Um, and I thought, wouldn't it be great if we could bring this method to DC, but that'll never happen. And then I happened to be in a meeting with some people from the DC public school system and they said, they had read this article too. And they were thinking they were gonna to try to bring it to DC. And I was like, oh my God. So I said, well, if there's anything I can do to help with that, you know, let me know. And, and, and you know, that one thing led to another. And I met Judy Hoffman because she was coming down to DC to lead these trainings for teachers. And we just clicked. And I, she didn't even have an organization yet, but I said, you know, if you'd like me to like be, if, she said she was starting one. I said, well, if you'd like me to be on the board. And she just said, oh, I was afraid to ask. And, you know, anyway. <laughs> so, um, and then it became apparent that a book needed to be written yeah. uh, to sort of codify this method. And, and Judy had written a book, but um, it was kind of bare bones and she didn't really have the time. She needed some help, you know, just to get it done. And so at the time I thought, well, I, I don't have that much else to do. I'll, I'll help with this book. And then I got a contract for the other book. And so I was actually writing two books at once, which oh, I do wow. not recommend. I had a very tough year there, but um, I managed to do it. Wow. Gosh. So did you, like, I mean, the writing revolutions had an enormous impact. So I was talking to um, our head of English here. I think you call it English language arts in, in the US, but we just call it English. But um, I was talking to- We used to just call it English. <laughs> uh, so uh, Mark Scrooby- behind that. Yeah, so. I'm sure. Um, Mark Scrooby, and he said, basically, because we're involved in this and we do the training, and he said, now it's got so huge that Australia is essentially treated now as a district within the whole training um, uh, apparatus of the right. So did you foresee- that, th that it would have this kind of an impact when you were when you were working on on drafts of the book. No, I mean it. It's very gratifying and heartening to see that, but I didn't. I didn't really have any particular expectation. I think I kind of thought there was another board member who said to me, you know, somebody needs to help Judy do this, and we, you know, we need to codify this. And I saw it as sort of something that would be used in the writing revolution courses, which it is but not necessarily something that would have a life of its own and people all over the world would be reading. And uh, Australia is definitely one of the, the places where there's a huge amount of interest. Um, so no, did not, um, did not anticipate that at all. Were you, obviously you, you talk a bit about your experience with the, the kids you were tutoring. Were you surprised sort of um, to learn how most schools teach writing or was it just something you you, you knew from your own school days because the 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 point i suppose i'm making is the writing revolution method is very different to the way that most schools would teach writing so um did did that strike you as a surprise that people wouldn't be doing it that way i suppose you know i i've been very i was very lucky i don't remember really learning how i learned to write it was yeah. I, there are, you know, like there's some kids who don't need systematic phonics instruction to learn to decode. Um, you know, I think I just, I did kind of just pick up writing to a large extent because I had highly literate parents who bombarded me with text and all sorts of things. And, you know, um, and I think that's been the expectation is that certainly when it comes to this those sentence level writing skills, we don't, you know, we might say, okay, it's, Sentences that contains a subject and a verb and expresses a complete thought, and we just expect kids to get it, and they'll pick up the nuances, you know, like how to use subordinate conjunctions or whatever from their reading. And for most kids, that that does not happen. Um, I I guess I you know 
my familiarity with writing instruction to the extent that I was familiar had more to do with my kids who are now in their 30s and how they were taught to write, which, you know, is interesting. My, my son's third grade teacher, and this is a long time ago because he's 33 now, was an early disciple of Lucy Calkins. So okay. that was my first exposure to this very peculiar, I thought, method of having in those days, it was he, he was asked, he was already in third grade, a pretty good writer, but his teacher had him write the same thing over and over again, and he did not want to, you know, so, so I thought, what is this? Um, so I, and other than that, you know, my kids were just sort of told, express yourselves, um, you know, and it was celebrated that they were expressing themselves, but they were not explicitly taught to write. So I can't say I was really shocked uh, that that wasn't being taught, but I, I was certainly surprised at the level of, of writing skill that I was seeing, you know, not just in these kids I was tutoring, but, you know, you, it's all over the place that people are not writing at the level they, they really should be able to and could if they were actually taught. So yeah, I that surprise. I think uh, I was taught um, in the whole language era. Um, I, I was fortunate. My mum taught me to read before I started school using a kind of phonics, um, yeah. uh, probably not systematic synthetic phonics that we would use today, but still a kind of phonics. Um, but when it came to writing, that's what I did at school. And I just wrote and wrote and you just wrote things. So I remember writing a, re a retelling of the Christmas Carol. Just writing and writing. I didn't know. Um, I, I didn't know what a clause was. Like I wouldn't. I just wouldn't be able to tell you. Uh, and I've learned stuff since um, as a teacher, and well, even working with English teachers. But I didn't know a lot of that. Any of that well, stuff. Really. I, I guess I had. I mean, I can remember. I had a much more traditional education in the sense that we were t we you know, we diagrammed sentences, and I loved diagramming sentences. There are people who think that's what we need more of because they probably love doing it too. And it's kind of like a puzzle and it's fun, but that does not work for many kids. So um, I did get that more explicit kind of writing instruction in the sense that I was taught things, you know, the rules of grammar and the parts of speech and all of that. But that's, you know, it, and, and as I said, there's some people who think we just need to bring that back and we'll be fine. But there's all this research showing, going back a hundred years showing that doesn't work for most kids. It doesn't transfer over to their writing. There's even apparently, there's some studies showing it has a negative impact on, maybe they get really self-conscious, I don't know. But, you know, so um, what I had was different from what you had, but it also would not work for many kids. <laughs> I think the, the way, the, the, I think the, the philosophy that a lot, I've seen a lot with English teachers is, we'll get them to write something, then when they've written it, we'll take it away and we'll uh, bust a gut um, reading it all and putting comments on it and then give it back to them. And my perception on that is it's, it's rather like trying to coach um, soccer by getting people to just play games of soccer. And then at the end of each game, writing them a little note, telling them what they've got to improve, improve for the next game. Um, and it's just really inefficient. Um, it creates a lot of work for teachers who always feel guilty because they're, they're not up to date with all their marking or they haven't given it back quickly enough. And it's also backwards. So rather than letting them write and fail and then telling them probably not all the ways they've failed because that would be demotivating, but about three or four things that they should work on. Why don't we just teach them to write in the first place um, and just flip that whole thing around? Yeah, and you know, I mean, you you know, you might get a comment uh, like vary your sentence structure, but if the the student doesn't know how to vary, doesn't know what the options are, has not been taught how to vary the sentence structure, that's not going to help. I think what ha tends to happen in this country and a lot of you know really the schools where the kids are really struggling with writing, uh, especially at the high school level, is that teachers just stop assigning writing. That's what I found when I was tutoring. I thought. I, 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 what I volunteered, I thought, oh, well, I will be helping them with their writing assignments for class. And when I got there, I discovered they didn't have any writing assignments for class. 
And then when at the end of the semester, they suddenly had to write an essay you know, and, and I, I might see what had, the teacher had written and there would be like a, like red circles because the teacher really didn't have time to do much more than circle things. And I would say, do you know why your teacher circled that? And the kid would say, no. <laughs> so um, I, I can really understand though why confronted with page after page of error-filled writing, a teacher just does not know where to begin. Um, and of course, even if you do spend hours uh, making comments, you're right that that is, um, you know, it's putting the cart before the horse or the cart or the something. It's, it's doing it backwards because as Judy Hockman says, you know, sentences are the building blocks of all writing. If you haven't taught kids how to construct good sentences and they don't just come by it naturally as many don't, they're never gonna write a good paragraph or a good essay. Um, and so Judy also says, you know, you wouldn't start building a house with the roof. You, you start with the foundation and work your way up just as you're saying. What you were saying there about not being assigned writing, I, I have uh, this ongoing thing where I'm very skeptical of uh, differentiated instruction. Um, so this is the idea that um, different students in a class should be give, assigned different tasks to do based on some understanding of their um, capabilities. Um, and the idea is that you can then cater to a wide range of abilities within one classroom and you don't have to um, stream kids or do things like that. Um, and I think that to a certain extent, all teachers do some differentiation, but a lot of the things that we're told to do um, I'm deeply skeptical of. And I think one of the things that you, you get, um, and one of the problems with differentiation is that opposites can both be described as differentiation. And one of the things you often find is, so if, if students struggle with writing, uh, the teacher might say, okay, we'll just record audio of your, of, of a speech instead. Where you can, and they'll say, well, this is great because I'm, I'm using differentiation, um, which is this strategy that we're supposed to employ, but actually, we haven't addressed the problem here, the problem that needs addressing. Yeah, now it reminds me of, um, I was waiting in line for a train, obviously this was quite a while ago um, at, in, here in DC and somehow struck up a conversation with the person behind me and he was from Germany and I, I don't know, somehow we started talking about, well, I've written this book about writing instruction and that's exactly, it was his experience. He said, well, you know, I. I was told in school I couldn't write very well, so I didn't need to. You know, I was able to do things. And the problem, as he pointed out, was he never really learned how to write. Um, so I think there is there is a, a, a place for something called differentiation, but it should not be like, oh, you can't write, then make you know make an audio recording or what we see a lot is differentiation in this country comes to mean different kids will be reading different content and learning or not learning different things. And yeah. that's also not good. But, you know, I mean, on the other hand, let's say you have all kids writing about the Civil War or, or whatever, and uh, maybe one kid's writing a sentence using a sentence stem because that kid is still working on sentence level skills. Another kid is ready to write a paragraph. Maybe even another kid's ready to write an essay. And that, you know, I mean, I don't know that there'll be that wider range of differentiation within one classroom, but, but there might. And at least they're all accessing the same content. And of course, writing a sentence can be a very challenging cognitive activity, it can be really, you know, it's like, I think Mark Twain or somebody said, if I'd had more time, I would have written a shorter letter. Sometimes it can actually be harder to write a one set good sentence than a three page essay. So, um, although cognitively, you know, it is more demanding to write at length. So that's a whole other innovation of the writing revolution that it modulates this incredible cognitive load that writing imposes on inexperienced writers. Um, so, you know, but as you know, uh, the thing is not to make things just easy, but to have the kind of cognitive load that leads to learning rather than the kind of cognitive load that detracts from it. And a lot of what we do when we ask kids to write at length is, is have that bad cognitive load imposed on them so that they cannot, they neither learn the content through writing nor do they learn how to write well. So I think anyway, there is a place for that kind of differentiation because it certainly, I don't know what it's like in Australia, but teachers in the United States can have hugely varying levels of ability within the same classroom. Yeah, I, I, and it, this is my point really, not that differentiation is bad, but that it can mean so many different things some of which are supported by the evidence and some of which 
are not. And we probably need to um, move on to different terms. As you were talking about cognitive load there, um, it, writing is um, very complex. So we, we'd use in cognitive load theory, we'd use the idea of element interactivity, which is um, that, so the elements that you have to process in working memory, uh, that uh, they could be discrete, so they could not depend on each other, or they could interact, which then creates extra elements to process. So, for instance, when you're composing a paragraph, um, you know, your, your initial sentence and your subsequent sentences all have to relate to each other. So they're not discrete from each other. They, they, they interact. And so the, the methodology of the writing revolution, we start with a sentence first. You acquire a schema for, for writing various different types of sentences. Uh, which you can then activate. So schemas that you activate from long-term memory, you don't need to process, or they don't require the processing power of working memory. So once you've got that, you can then start to focus on the paragraph um, and you're just activating those sentence schemas while your cognitive uh, resources are focused on the paragraph and so on, and gradually build it up to um, the, the, the essay level. And when it, it makes perfect sense when you see it like that, but it's just not... What we've taught. When I first saw it, um, so cognitive load theory is obviously the, the thing that I research, um, but it it gives you some ideas about what to do in the classroom. But um, it also supports um, the Rosenstein's principles of instruction, that body of uh, research that Rosenstein talks about in his principles of instruction, and and all, a lot of cognitive load theory effects, or even their Rosenstein's principles come from a very different body of research. They're all, they're consistent with cognitive load theory. And so reading one kind of explains the other to a certain extent. And when I saw, um, but Rosenstein's principles are very generic. So that they could in theory be applied to teaching pretty much anything. Although a lot of the research that went into it comes from early numeracy and literacy. Um, but when I saw the writing revolution for the first time, I thought this is Rosenstein's principles, but it's been fleshed out in the context of writing. Um, and that was my first um, reaction to it. Um, sorry, that was a bit waffly, but I hope you, you see what I was trying to say there. Yeah, no, that's an, it's an interesting, I mean, you know, the interesting thing to me is that Judy, when, when Judy Hockman started really through trial and error, creating this method, she, she didn't know about Rosenstein's principles. She, she said there wasn't, she looked for writing research and I think, you know, things are so siloed. She was probably looking within the sort of parameters of education research, not cognitive psychology research. And anyway, she didn't find much, but she just came up through trial and error with a system that really conforms very well to what cognitive science has found about how the mind works and, and how learning works. Um, and, you know, here's a, a thing that is currently bothering me uh, about research. There, first of all, there's very little research as far as I can tell on writing per se. Yeah, and, and I've asked Dan Willingham and you know others, and they say, yeah, there, there really isn't very much. Now there is, there is research um, in you know, psychology, whatever, establishing it's clear that writing imposes a heavy load on working memory, executive function, whatever you wanna call it. You're juggling a lot of things when you're writing. And there's also research showing that certain uh, approaches to, to teaching writing at the sentence level work well, like sentence combining, which is uh, not something that Judy invented, but she incorporated it yeah. into the writing revolution. But there is no research actually looking at, does it work better if when, we, when students are learning to write, we ask them just to write sentences and we teach them just to write sentences rather than asking them to write at length from the get-go. And that is the standard approach. I mean, it's enshrined now in the Common Core, you know, everything except, as far as I can tell, the writing revolution. Kindergartners are supposed to be writing opinion essays about their favorite books, you know, and they are still struggling with letter formation, you know, so. Um, and so this is, this is a gap in the research that I would love to see filled. Could, could you take a look at, you know, does it make sense to start teaching kids to write by teaching them how to write sentences? I, well, look, I think there's no research I'm aware of that has tested that specifically. But um, in terms of what cognitive load theory, for instance, and cognitive load theory is just one way of looking at this stuff. And, and there are other ways which are essentially equivalent in many ways. 
Um, but cognitive load theory would suggest that, yes, you should. Because basically, um, it, it's this idea that once you develop a schema for doing something or for understanding something, and it's in your long-term memory, you can then activate it with relatively little effort. So if you automate schemas for writing sentences, then, and that's all in place, then when you start writing paragraphs, you can focus on what the paragraph's got to look like, and then all these sentences can be sort of activated. Auto it doesn't mean you're not thinking about them, but it just means that you've, uh, you've got a, like a set of maps and models that you can draw upon fairly effortlessly. Um, and uh, I think, but the, I th there are a no number of problems. You, you've alluded to the standardized testing. So in Australia, for instance, in from year three, so grade three, um, kids have to write uh, an extended piece of, of writing for our NAP plan assessments. So we, when we've implemented the writing revolution, we struggled a bit because that we have to put them into this standardized assessment, but we really, we should still be focusing on sentences. And another thing I think that's possibly motivational um, and I, I think there's an argument for saying, like little kids, um, some little kids particularly like writing stories. Um, and I'm not sure we should prevent them from writing stories if they are self-motivated to do so. And I, I wonder whether what you need is like a mix where like your ideal elementary school wouldn't have the standardized test at grade three where they've got to do the extended writing. So in class, they do a lot of sentence work, but you know, every week they can do a bit of narrative writing, um, only narrative because kids aren't really motivated to write argumentative essays, a bit of narrative writing and then, and maybe have a competition and in, a, in assembly, you know, we can say, oh, this, this, this story won this month's competition or whatever, and just have that sort of mix. But the technical work is going on mainly at the sentence level. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, I don't wanna, um make sweeping generalizations because schools are different, kids are different. And when I, I remember asking Judy at one point, well, you know, what about creative writing or, you know, giving kids this, and, and basically her answer was, you know, it's a question of time. Like, what are you going to allocate time to? And, and you know, if a, if a kid wants to write creatively and express him or herself, um, and there's time for that, I think she would say, that's fine. But what I've seen are, um, you know, I remember before I was writing either book, I think I was in a second grade classroom at this charter school where I was, I was on the board and this teacher, they were using, you know, writer's workshop. And this teacher showed me pa several pages of what a kid had written and said, he said, you know, I know I'm supposed to respond to this, but I can't tell what he's trying to say. How am I supposed to respond to this? So I think that is often what you get um, is the kids, you know, I would rather have them in a situation like that express themselves by talking than yeah. by trying to put it down in writing. Now, you know, some kids will be able to write a great story and get a lot of satisfaction from it, but a lot of kids in a lot of schools won't. And it's not that I want to stifle their free expression and their and their you know uh, their self expression, but um, right now the pendulum has swung very far in this country. To we need kids to write at length so they can express themselves and and develop their voice and their fluency and their writing stamina. And you know, eventually they should be working on all of those things, but they'll never develop their voice, many of them, unless they actually are explicitly taught how to express themselves. They will not have a voice. Absolutely. And I think um, in my model where, where you would give them the opportunity to do a little bit of story writing, you'd have to be very careful that that didn't take over and that, that teachers didn't start taking them home and marking them and putting loads of comments on them because that wouldn't be the point of that activity that the point of that activity would be separate and where the focus on the writing would be elsewhere things like uh, sentence combining that again they are they would be very consistent with um uh, ideas of cognitive load because um essentially you're one of the problems we have uh with working memory we can process about four items but the other thing is, is relating them to each other. And if you've got lots of possibilities for relating things to each other, uh, you, you've got to process all of those. 
And by giving sentence combination, you're, you're basically locking down some of the possibilities. And so the bit that they have to manipulate is much smaller. So again, um, entirely consistent with what we'd, we'd predict. Yeah, and, and I think that lies behind a, a lot of, if not all of the activities and the, the strategies in the writing revolution. I mean, it's, it's not just write a sentence about Abraham Lincoln, you know, or, or as Judy says, not just why was Abraham Lincoln a great president? It's got to, you got, need more guardrails for inexperienced writers, yes. um, which is sort of like what you were saying about sentence combining. So, you know, there's this activity because, but, and so Abraham Lincoln was a great president because, and that's simultaneously teaching them how to use because, which not all kids pick up naturally, and also focusing their attention. They just have to they have to finish that sentence in their own words, but it's giving them a path a, and, and a, 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 it, it's narrowing all the things they have to juggle. And, and then the same thing with but, which is harder because it's calling for contrasting information. So you do that once they've mastered because, you know? <laughs> so. Yeah. Now, and again, yeah, it's, it's about, um, it's the gradual release of responsibility. So those guardrails, as you described them, they basically, they narrow the focus and so keep things within um, the limits of cognitive load. And obviously, as, this, as the learners become more expert, as these things become schemas that are in long-term memory, which they can activate automatically, you can release some of those, um, and or you can give them alternatives, you can build those schemas, and so on. Um, and that's that gradual release of responsibility. But it does... Um, it does make a lot of sense. Look, um, I want to now uh, get on to your, uh, well, I say your latest book, uh, the, the Knowledge Gap, but I now understand that you, you were writing that in parallel <laughs> with The Writing Revolution. Um, so um, for those that haven't read it, um, could you maybe summarise for us what the, the big idea is of The Knowledge Gap? Sure. Well, I'll tell you a story about how it's Genesis because it has to do yeah. with Judy Hockman and the writing revolution. I um, I had gotten to know Judy and I thought her method was great. And as I mentioned, I was on the board of this charter school, this elementary school. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if this charter school, which was serving you know, students from low income population, they were struggling with things like writing, wouldn't it be great if they this school could adopt the writing revolution? So I asked Judy to look into that and talk to them. And she came back to me and said, well, the problem is that this method of writing instruction really only works if it's embedded in the content of the curriculum. And, and your, your school isn't teaching any content. And I could not process this information. I was like, first of all, I, I was on the school performance committee. I'd been in a lot of classrooms. I, I was like, what do you mean? It's a school, what are they teaching? <laughs> and, I, and she started to explain to me that they were focusing largely on reading comprehension skills and strategies, which was something, you know, I realized I had not understood what I was looking at when I was in those classrooms uh, there and elsewhere. And so she explained to me that uh, the theory, uh, and I later found others who, who went into more depth about this, you know, the, the theory is that first kids need to learn to master skills or strategies like finding the main idea, making inferences, et cetera. And it really doesn't matter that much whether they're learning anything substantive because eventually they'll be able to use these strategies or skills to acquire knowledge through their own reading. They'll be able to find the main idea. Once they go to find the main idea, they'll be able to uh, apply it to a high school textbook or, or a, a, one hopes the passages on the end of the year reading test, which is what this is all aimed at. And it's not that they, these skills uh, were caused this is kind of in skills focused instruction was caused by the standardized reading test, but that has certainly exacerbated an existing approach because it looks like those tests are testing for can how well can you find the main idea. But of course, as I discovered, cognitive scientists have known for a long time that there really isn't any such thing as a generally applicable skill at finding the main idea that it's much more important. Uh, how much the reader knows about the topic he or she is reading about. Um, and, you know, once I stumbled across that, it, it, it really changed the lens through which I looked at almost any problem in education. And it seemed to really underlie so many of the things that we were trying to address 
through other methods. And we're in some cases making worse by trying to address through other methods like standardized test results and holding people accountable on the basis of those results. And um, when I, I realized this, I, I also realized, although I thought I knew a lot about education, I had been writing about education for several years as a journalist. I'd been reading everything I could get my hands on. I'd been listening to experts and I'd never heard anybody mention this as a problem, nor that we, even the fact that we weren't trying to teach anything substantive in elementary school. Nobody was talking about this. Now, I did come across eventually a, a group of people, including E.D. Hirsch, who had been talking about this for decades and were very concerned about it, but clearly it wasn't getting into the public conversation about education the way it should have. And it struck me uh, that maybe if somebody took a journalistic approach and you know, wrote about it in an engaging way and told stories, that it might grab some more public attention and, and people might actually start talking about it. So that's, that's what I set out to do. So um, it's interesting, isn't it? Because Edie Hirsch, obviously, he had a bestseller in the 1980s, cultural literacy, but it didn't make this impact and it hasn't had an impact in schools. Um, and partly, I think, I don't know, um, I mean, I've chatted to Hirsch for this podcast, but I didn't ask him about this. Um, but you, you wonder whether there are kind, there's like a uh, an immune system that the education system has for rejecting these ideas because he had a lot of hostile reaction to cultural literacy. Yes, and I, and I have talked to him about this. I spent yeah. a lot of time with him actually because uh, I wrote about him in the book. And I, I must say, footnote here, he is amazing. Uh, I mean, he... Um, I before I had a book contract or anything and I mean I knew of him he didn't know anything about me but I, I got a an op-ed in the New York Times and the morning it was published I had not even seen it yet I looked at my phone at seven in the morning there was an email to me from E.D. Hirsch saying what a wonderful op-ed he had found I mean and he was you know in his upper 80s he'd found a way to contact me he'd read it he'd sent me this email already and he said you must come down to Charlottesville where he lives and we'll have lunch which I which I did so you know <laughs> just really amazing guy um but I think there are a couple of reasons that cultural literacy did not have the impact it should have and I think one of them was as I think Hirsch to some extent would agree, that list at the end uh, of 5,000 words and phrases every American should know. Uh, he told me there, there were pirated copies of that list circulating without the book. People were buying the book just for that list and they were playing party games with that list and quizzing each other. And they weren't really reading the book. And I think a lot of people you know, got the idea that he just wanted kids to memorize the 5,000 words and phrases on that list. And they got the idea that he sat back in his professorial armchair and thought, what is it that's worth knowing? And out of his head came up with these 5,000 words and phrases, which is not what he did. It was much more empirical. He and some colleagues looked at what is it, what is the knowledge that, that is assumed in newspapers, et cetera? What are the references or the cultural illusions that people are assumed to know? And that's how they came up with the list. I still think, in my view, the list was a mistake. Um, I think you're, you're just sort of asking for hostility and, and um, parody if you include a list like that. But the other thing, of course, that went on, and by the way, I, I asked, I once asked Don, if you could do something differently with cultural literacy, like, what would you do? And I thought he might say, well, I would omit the list. But instead, he said, I would call it uh, not what every American should know, 5,000 words of phrase every American should know, but what elite Americans do know. I'm not sure yeah. that would have been enough, but, but he, did, he did say that. Um, but I think the other thing was, you know, it, this came out, this book, at a time when multiculturalism was in on the ascendant, especially on the left, and a lot of educators tend to be on the left of the political spectrum. And um, certainly if you look at the list, as many of them did, it's very you know, Eurocentric, uh, not completely, but, um, and they, they felt that this was uh, you know, shoving dead white males down the throats of defenseless black and brown children, essentially. Um, and you know, it was, it, it's sort of ironic and, and I don't know if I want to say tragic, but it's certainly unfortunate that Hirsch was motivated by a tremendous uh, 
empathy and, and concern for uh, lower income black students. I mean, this is how he came to write the book was he discovered he went to this community college. He was doing this experiment that he had done at University of Virginia, which was a pretty elite institution where he was teaching on uh, testing students uh, ability to, it was really a writing experiment more than a reading experiment. They, they were given well-written and badly written versions of the same content. And they were tested to see, you know, how much more quickly could they read the well-written versions. But when he tried this at a black, a community college serving black students, he discovered that they couldn't, there was no difference in how quickly they could read well-written and badly written accounts of something to do with the Civil War. And he realized, he, this was his perception, that was absolutely correct. The reason there was no difference was that they, they didn't have the background knowledge to understand either version, well-written or badly written. It didn't matter if they didn't have the background knowledge. And so he was motivated by this, that experience to write cultural literacy. And yet he ends up being accused of being this arch conservative when he has described himself as practically a socialist and essentially sort of racist which is, could not be further from the truth. That was you know, not what he was at all about. So um, it's really, it's very, um, it's an unfortunate story. And I, I think you know, it is to his tremendous credit that he didn't just sort of slink away with his tail between his legs, but he kept, kept writing books and has recently come out with yet another book. Um, you know, and I think though that he understood when I, when, when I went and had lunch with him in Charlottesville and I told him, I had this idea that what was needed was this more journalistic account. He immediately said, you're absolutely right. That's, that's what's needed. What, what is the answer? Like, uh, we do, I, I think there's almost like a cultural, um, uh, no, no, a philosophical uh, divide here. Um, I think those of us who, there's those of us who say, that, look, the world is the way it is uh, to, uh, do well at university, you do need to know a lot of things um, that have come through, um, uh, you know, from uh, Western European thought. Um, and that's just the way the world is now. So if we don't want to disadvantage students, uh, we have to teach them those things. Now, in, eventually, maybe, um, when uh, we teach disadvantaged students this stuff, uh, they become college professors, they become the elite, they become politicians, they can change the world and the world can go off in a different direction. Uh, but right now, in order to be successful in America uh, and go to college and, and, and understand what's going on, you need to know certain things about the Civil War, for instance. Um, and then there are those who philosophically just object to that and say, no, we need to just change the whole system. It, we shouldn't have a system where you need to know those things in order to be successful. The system should be that um, uh, people of color can, can um, learn about stuff that's relevant to them. Um, I'm not quite sure how the Civil War wouldn't be, but anyway, it's probably not the best example. I but, get in there. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but uh, things that they're, they're particularly relevant to them, that, that they're interested in, follow their pursuits, and they should be able to go to elite colleges. Maybe we need to um, police the way that those colleges admit students and things like that in order to make that happen. So um, I, I'm wondering how we can bridge that divide. I mean, what would you say to someone who, who says, look, you know, we can't teach the canon um, because it is, uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a um, construction of whiteness or, 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 or something. Uh, how, how would you start trying to uh, tackle that opinion? Well, I think the canon does change. I mean, it has certainly changed since many decades ago when I was in high school, but it changes pretty slowly. And um, and I think that these, these well-intentioned efforts really run the risk, as you are saying, of putting the intended beneficiaries of this approach at a tremendous disadvantage. I mean, if they get to college and they're the only student in a class who's never heard of Stonehenge or Winston Churchill or even Alice in Wonderland. And those are all examples taken from memoirs or reminiscences by first generation college goers. I mean, then that that's putting them at an unfair disadvantage. And, you know, I mean, I, I do think it's fine to uh, have a, a, a place for 
expanding our narrative, certainly of American history, and I'm, it, it definitely has been expanded. It's, it's not the same version that I learned. But um, I would say that to just have um, an Afrocentric curriculum or just have you know, a, a, a curriculum that focuses on the experiences of black and brown children. I mean, what do you do if you have white kids in the classroom? You know, this, this second grade classroom that I followed through school year, they were all kids of color, but they were pretty diverse. About half of them were from Ethiopian families. Many of them were from Latin American families. You know, I mean, it's not that simple to just to reflect their experience. It's not monolithic. So I, I think the one thing they had, all those kids had in common where they were living in the United States of America, and, you know, I think the um, gold, golden opportunity that we are wasting here is, yes, later on, certainly high school, kids are li li liable to ask, what does this have to do with me and my experience? Second graders, first graders are not asking those questions. If you tell them a good story, they are yours. These kids were fascinated by Greek myths. They were fascinated by the War of 1812. They were on the edge of their seats, who's going to win, the British or the Americans? And I hope it's the Americans, you know. And um, so, and the, the thing is, you know, it's not that they shouldn't have, shouldn't be learning anything about, you know, the civil rights movement or, or you know, African history. That, that can come in. And if we spent less time on these largely useless reading comprehension skills and strategies, which take up almost the entire you know, half, at least half the day, then there'd be lots more time for all sorts of things. But the thing is that they are learning things. They're learning about Greek myths and, you know, American history and, and Andrew Jackson and things that will stand them in very good stead later on. And later on, if they, if they want to delve more deeply into uh, topics that relate more closely to their own cultures and et cetera, that's fine. But they'll have a foundation of what sort of mainstream American history and culture has been. And that's, you know, I think is, is really hugely important. At the same time, I would say that, uh, a, a, you know, a, a curriculum that concentrates on the experience of marginalized people, et cetera, it centers that is better than a curriculum that has no content at all. Yeah. And, you know, and I use my own education as kind of a, a example in reverse, I had an extremely Eurocentric education. I went to this a private school that was, you know, really using some, in some ways, antiquated methods. Um, we spent an entire year in sixth grade on Anglo-Saxon history, for example. So there were a lot of things that got left out of my education, but I had this critical mass of academic knowledge and vocabulary that equipped me to learn on my own about a whole bunch of things later on. I mean, you know, I've, I learned a lot about women's history, which I, even though I went to a girls school, we really didn't learn anything about. And I've learned about African American history. I've learned a lot about education, which I didn't, nobody taught me that. I taught myself. And I couldn't have done that unless I had that sort of, unless I had accumulated a lot of knowledge, um, not about exactly what I was reading about, but, you know, enough knowledge to give me, to equip me. And it's not skills, it's knowledge that equipped me to acquire more knowledge. So I would say, you know, ideally kids would get a grounding in at least some aspects of mainstream American culture and history. Um, but if they don't and they get enough exposure to key academic concepts and vocabulary, then maybe, you know, maybe they'll be able to acquire that other knowledge later on. Well, as, yeah, better than doing reading comprehension activities all day, I suppose. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it's a funny one. I, I tend to think, like, I, I don't see, I can't see the world, and I suppose it's a problem, I can't see the world as, um, uh, as, as this one, monolithic thing representing this one group of people. I mean, even maths, which is what I teach, we use um, ideas that have come from all over the world and from a range of different cultures, even the actual numbers themselves. Um, so the idea that, you know, this particular bit of culture belongs to this narrowly defined group of people, um, I, I find strange. And, and the, the fact that I, I, the students I teach don't that don't necessarily have to relate to everything that I teach them uh, at a personal identity level. I mean, I'm teaching abstract maths, for instance, and 
I know that people say, well, that, that's abstract maths maybe is a Euro, Eurocentric thing, but I don't think it is um, because it's been used all over the world by different people and advances in it have been made in that way. And it's, it's abstract. And you, you don't see yourself reflected in it. Nobody does because it's numbers and abstract concepts. I think we, we've gone past the point of reasonableness with, with some of these arguments, but I would say definitely um, the canon in the broadest sense in terms of including scientific knowledge, historical knowledge, literature, etc., does evolve over time and it should evolve to be more representative, particularly in areas that have been neglected, uh, women's history, uh, um, history of parts of the world other than Europe and North America that tend to have been neglected. I think that we should see that reflected more in the curriculum. But then when you look at what E.D. Hirsch and the Core Knowledge Foundation have put together, they, they certainly try and do that. But I, I, I'm just not, I think some people are just not listening. Yeah, and, and I mean, you know, I, I think there, there are differences of opinion um, about what, what a culturally responsive curriculum or approach would look like. Um, I, you know, I mean, I know some uh, leaders of school systems that, that essentially are serving minority disadvantaged populations who feel, you know, core knowledge is perfectly fine. Maybe they'll supplement it with some other things, which I think is definitely a better approach than trying to construct a culturally responsive curriculum on your own. Um, and, and then there, there are some people who say even math or you know a lesson about frogs has to include, I saw something about that on social media, has to include some you know, social justice elements and, and culturally responsive elements. And so you know, I think it's kind of all over the map out there, but what I hope doesn't happen and what I am concerned has, is happening to some extent is that people are saying, you know, I, it is important to teach kids content and build their knowledge but the question of whose knowledge is just too complicated and too fraught. So we're going to stick with skills, even though we know they're not really going yeah. to work. And I just feel like there's no excuse for that. Yeah, I think so. And um, I think what we need are principles that we, the policy, like, you know, you have a policy on how you employ uh, staff or, or a policy on how you dismiss staff or a policy on, um, on food on campus or whatever. We, I think we need a policy on how we select our curriculum. Uh, and it might look a bit strange to do that. But once people have written those and put them on the table, uh, you, we can start actually um, looking at those principles, deconstructing them, saying, are these the best principles and so on. Whereas at the moment, we just have teachers go um, a, a lot of the time in many schools just dis making those decisions for themselves based on what they've heard from other teachers, based on what they've seen on social media. It's, yes, and I mean, and there's also, we haven't talked about this, I mean, teacher training is a huge part of this problem, yeah. and and certainly in this country, there are, you know, professors at ed schools who basically tell prospective teachers, you don't really want to follow a curriculum, good teachers don't do that, right, and, and of course, if it's a bad curriculum, they may be right, but it's not, I mean, if it's a good curriculum, you know, then it could be extremely helpful, um, but I, I do think, you know, on the bright side, it's still a drop in the bucket, but there are more and more school districts in this country that are adopting some of the content-focused elementary literacy curricula that have recently been developed in like the past six years or so. Uh, so, you know, I, I think in some places it's beginning to change. Um, not going to happen overnight, but at least there are signs of hope. Um, so for the, the knowledge gap, you've visited a number of schools. You've obviously also done a lot of work in schools. And we've kind of touched on this already, but I'll just give you an opportunity uh, to add to this. What have you, when you visited these schools, have you seen anything that really surprised you? When I visited the schools that are uh, using this the newer content-focused approach or when I've visited schools that were not? <laughs> oh, either really, just like, uh, I, I, I suppose what, as a teacher, I'm interested in an out, uh, sort of outsider's perspective going into schools and think, actually, this is really surprising that they do this in schools. Surprisingly good or surprisingly not either. Good? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, I, I'll start with, with the good. Uh, really, at the very like, beginning, when I was just thinking about writing this book, um, 
I went to a, a first grade classroom in a school where I did end up following this second grade classroom and I had really wanted to follow this teacher I observed, but she got bumped upstairs. But she was doing, they were doing a CKLA lesson on Mesopotamia, first grade. And she had been doing this lesson. This was her third time around with this lesson. And I thought I was gonna walk into the classroom and she was gonna be reading, the, you know, there's a story. This would have been a story about a boy and his father walking around Babylon and observing things like the hanging gardens. But she had noticed in the previous year or two that the kids, this particular story didn't really engage the kids that much. So I walked into the classroom and I see she's, there's these two lines of blue construction paper on the floor. And I was like, what is this? And she had decided to make it more experiential. Those two lines of blue construction paper were the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. And she had at the other end of the classroom where they terminated, there was a big poster of Babylon. I don't know where she'd gotten it from. And she had the kids pretend they were on a time travel expedition to ancient Babylon. And those kids were just mesmerized. Um, they pretended to paddle down the Tigris and Euphrates rivers and she had them close their eyes and she described all the things they would see in this hypnotic voice. But she knew by that time what concepts, what vocabulary they needed to get from this lesson. And she made sure that was in there. So, um, you know, I, I think, uh, yes, experiential learning or whatever, this, this, that kind of engaging learning, she knew that that would help it stick. But she also, you know, they could have engagement without learning. And yes. I think that teachers are often focused on the engagement part, but this was engagement plus learning. So that, that has stuck with me. But the thing, you know, that the other thing that has surprised me is um, a few times now, I, I've gone to schools that were touted to me as being, doing knowledge building, focusing on content and doing all these wonderful things. And, you know, I would go and see them and I would really be appalled because they thought they were doing it, but they were asking questions like, tell me about the text structure, you know, to third graders. What do you notice about the text structure rather than anything about the content? That would be the first yeah. question. You know, just, I don't need to go into detail, but they were just, not doing what they thought they were doing. And I think this is, it's not just about adopting a curriculum or saying you're gonna focus on content because these habits that teachers have and that have been, they've been trained to believe work, they're very deeply ingrained. And so it's it really, um, teachers will need help to break those habits or break that, those or get out of those mindsets. Um, Absolutely, Dylan, Dylan Williams says, well, said once, I don't know whether he still sticks with this, but he reckons a teacher can change one element of their practice at a time. So mm. a lot of these reforms that we try and bring in, uh, that are completely radical shifts, very hard for teachers to do. Look, I've got two more questions for you. Um, and um, thank you for your, all, all the responses so far. It's been really interesting. But we, it, one of the things that's come up a couple of times uh, in different answers is, uh, reflections on standardized testing. So you said initially when you first started writing about education, uh, you were, we need standardized testing um, and this is, this is going to be a lever. But then since then you've talked about uh, how it, it, it's had some impacts on instruction that are not necessarily positive. It's encouraged teachers to do, um, you know, practice finding the main idea because that's one of the things that students are asked to do on a reading comprehension test. So where do you now sit on uh, the whole um, uh, system of standardized testing. Yeah, and I, I should, I don't know what it, the situation is in Australia, but I should clarify that the standardized tests in this country are deliberately designed to have absolutely nothing to do with anything that kids might've yeah. learned in school because the idea is we're not testing their knowledge, we're testing their general skills. Um, yeah, same here. And it is the same, yeah. okay. So, because I know, I mean, I was moderating a panel and an international panel on PISA tests and results. And, and one of the things that everybody's saying was, oh, well, you absolutely need standardized, national standardized testing. You know, that, that that's a real hallmark of educational improvement. And, and so we have that in this country, but it doesn't work because it's not grounded in a curriculum in content. And so it actually acts as an incentive to guide teachers away from teaching content which yeah. is never going to work. But um, so, you know, I think it's not that I'm against standardized tests per se. I think 
what they have done in, you know, in the past 20 years is uh, uncovered a lot of uh, gaps in equity that were previously hidden. I mean, you know, yeah. you could be getting an A at your high school. You didn't know how that compared to an A at another high school, and it could be something very different. So we were essentially lying to a lot of kids. But, you know, the, the problem is that these tests have been taken to be not just indicators, really, uh, they're indicators of that some, some groups lack a lot of knowledge. Um, they, they've been taken, not only have they not been taken to indicate that, they've been taken to indicate a lack of skill, and they've also been taken as guides to instruction, which is not what they were intended to be. Um, and I think, I mean, obviously you need some kind of system of accountability. In this country, we're never gonna have a national curriculum. We're never gonna have national tests grounded in a national curriculum. But the states, there's a lot that states can do. They are not, uh, their hands are not tied by our constitution as the national governments as are with regard to education. And, um, you know, there have been some interesting developments along those lines, especially Louise, the state of Louisiana first came up with, um, with a curriculum that was not required because you can't really do that, uh, but they established a system of incentives and, and really teacher education. And the result is that 80% of classrooms in the state are using this state curriculum um, in, I think, English language arts and social studies. Um, and, and the English language arts curriculum is content focused, start, you know, starting in elementary school. So the, then they were able to try this experiment essentially with a new kind of reading test, which is lo and behold, grounded in the content that's in the curriculum that the kids are actually learning in both English language arts and social studies. And some of it, some of the, to some extent, these tests are on the, the, you know, the actual texts that the kids have read, but sometimes it's something that's related. It's not the actual text, but it's related. And it, but it, it goes a long way towards leveling the playing field because you're no longer testing kids just on the knowledge that they've happened, they happen to pick up and more kids from more highly educated families are gonna be able to pick up a lot more academic knowledge outside school. And it's also, at last giving teachers an incentive to actually focus on teaching the content because there are gonna be consequences attached to that. So I, I don't know that, I don't think any other state is yet heading in that direction, but to me that, that's the most promising possibility. I mean, another alternative would be for the test designers to announce in advance, well, the reading passage, the topics on the reading passages are gonna be drawn from you know, five of the following eight subjects. And, and that would, at least uh, give teachers a clue about you know, what is it my students are gonna need to know to answer those questions. But that's not the, really the best way to design curriculum is to have a bunch <laughs> of test designers decide what it should be in the curriculum. So I think that's definitely a second best. Yeah, I, I should clarify, technically our um, standardized tests, we have them in grade three, five, seven, and nine. Technically they're based in a national curriculum, but you wouldn't know. They're, they're just, mm -hmm. you know, the reading comprehension test is some random passage plucked out of thin air um, which the kids are then um, assessed on and which has all the features that you describe so um, obviously the, the maths assessment we have a national curriculum for numeracy uh, and that does assess what's on the numeracy national curriculum but that's obviously a, a different kind of um, thing um, so maybe not just abandon all testing, but maybe let's get a bit smarter about how we do it and, and, and think about what we're incentivizing teachers to do and how we set the assessments. Um, so bearing that in mind, what other, like I look at the, the US, I'm a little bit, you said you've been on um, the board of a charter school. Um, I see charter schools as engines of innovation. So they seem to be the sort of places that can adopt things like the core knowledge curriculum and try that out or, 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 or different approaches. Um, but I also see at the moment the political tide, um, I sense is moving against charter schools in the US. Um, so what are our, like, if we want to improve some of the, the problems that you've highlighted, that you've seen when you've been into schools, um, what what are the solutions? What can we be doing as a community? Where should we be investing our efforts if we're going to try and address some of these problems? Yeah, I, well, you know, interestingly, the what I've seen more lately is not so much charter schools, and there's some charter schools that have adopted this 
approach to elementary curriculum that is yeah. more focused on content, but I'm seeing it more in traditional public school districts. Um, I mean, Baltimore, Detroit, a district in Houston, Texas, not, not the entire city of Houston, but a district there that you know has more students in it than I think are in the DC public school system have all been adopting, um, and then there are a bunch of other smaller places too, have all been adopting knowledge building curriculum. So I don't think, I mean, you know, theoretically charter schools are nimbler and they have more control over hiring, et cetera. They, they could make this change more easily, but most of them haven't. And, and some of those places that I was talking about going to, and, you know, I, you, you've got to see this school, it's building knowledge. This was a charter school and I get there and it really wasn't. Um, so I, I don't think that they have been in the vanguard. In some ways, they've been the worst offenders uh, with the skills and strategies approach to reading comprehension and really narrowing the curriculum to reading and math. So I, don't, I think we can do this without charter schools if it comes yeah. to that. I'm not against the concept of charter schools, but I don't think they're necessary to this. I think, you know, um, it really does depend a lot on strong leadership. Um, the, these districts that I know of that are making this switch, they, they have terrific, dedicated leaders who really understand the problem, the, the ones that I, I know, I don't know all of them, but, um, but they're not just in saying, okay, we're making, the, this is what happens a lot, at least in this country with teachers, get, they get new initiatives thrown at them all the time, yeah. and they get very skeptical, and it, often they don't, it's not explained to them why this is, makes sense, maybe because nobody really knows, but I think if you want teachers to embrace a new initiative, you should explain, you know, what what's the theory behind this? Why is this important? Um, because in you know, teachers historically they can just close the door and do whatever makes sense to them. So if it doesn't make sense to them, it's probably not going to really get implemented. And to the extent, you know, I mean, I, I think some places where I've talked to to administrators and teachers, there's been a lot of enthusiasm. Uh, you know, the administration proposes this, and there's a lot of eagerness. I don't think you can count on that. And I think in places where there is skepticism or even hostility, because this is very different from what teachers have been told is going to work or been trained to do, and it may feel threatening and unfamiliar. If you can show teachers, take them to a, a school or a district where this new approach is being done well, that can be very powerful um, because they see the kids are really actually engaged. They actually like learning facts, which yeah. <laughs> you know, teachers have been told, oh, that's boring. And the teachers actually like this approach and the parents like it. And you know, so I think that that can go a long way to uh, bring people on board. Great. Thank you so much for your insights and thank you for um, taking the, the time to uh, share those today. I'm sure um, uh, the listeners will be very interested. Well, thank you for having me. This was a real pleasure. Thank you.